Park Hills Baptist Church, the community that is here, the community that we've heard so much about from Samuel, and now getting to witness and experience it firsthand is a joy for us. So thank you for welcoming us here. I will say, just as I've gotten to know your pastor over the last several months, there's one thing that is clear to me in the way that he speaks about you, is that he deeply loves you. As I heard him pray this morning, it's also clear that he deeply loves the Lord. And I pray that you will continue to thrive and flourish, that God would help him to be the shepherd that he's called him to be, and that you will find joy in, in following his leadership in this place as you together grow in Christ-likeness. So thank you for having me here. Um, as some of you heard this morning earlier in the, in the earlier hour, my wife and I are getting ready and making the preparations to move to Dubai, to the Middle East, where I've taken a position as an associate pastor there. It is a mission that God has called us to. It was a mission that we moved with great fear and trepidation through praying about and thinking about before we said yes and started to go. But it is, we are convinced, the mission that God has for us. How do you think about God's mission? How do you think about God's mission for you? How do you understand what Jesus' mission is for you? Where do we go to know what Jesus' mission was and if we're supposed to be following Jesus, how do we know what our mission should be? That's what I want us to look at this morning as we turn to Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 through chapter 10, verse 1. That's the text we'll be looking at. And we're thinking about Jesus' mission and our mission. Let's read the passage starting in Matthew chapter 9, verse 35. Jesus went through all the towns and villages, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion on them, because they were harassed and helpless, like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. He called his twelve disciples to him and gave them authority to drive out evil spirits and to heal every disease and sickness. This morning I want to make two observations from this text about Jesus' mission and then see two instructions for our mission. So the first observation about Jesus' mission from this passage is Christ has authority over the world. And we see that in verse 35. Matthew chapter 9, verse 35 is a summary statement of what Matthew has been explaining for the last several chapters in his gospel. As Christ went throughout Galilee and the surrounding region, the people saw something unique about this man, about this man, Jesus. In Matthew 7, verse 28, the crowds were amazed at his teaching because he taught as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. In chapter 9, Jesus heals a paralyzed man. 
And when the man walks off with his mat, the crowds were filled with awe, and they praised God who had given such authority to men. When Jesus taught in the Jewish synagogues, as we see him doing here, what was it that the people heard that was so remarkable to them that they responded with awe and amazement? What was so different about this man and his teaching than the other rabbis and the other teachers who taught all the time? It was his authority, his command, his power. See, when Jesus taught from the Old Testament, he taught as the one who had spoken the Old Testament instead of as one just trying to, to grapple to understand it. He, Jesus, has authority over Scripture because he is Scripture's author. His authority was also clear as he went about preaching the good news of the kingdom. It's a message, this good news, that starts with the fact that God made us and God has right and good authority over us. It's a message that tells us about how we all have rebelled against that authority and it makes it clear that our rebellion justly deserves death. If we don't turn, this good news tells us, and if we don't repent to God for our sins against Him, we will die. We will face eternal punishment. We might not naturally think of all this as good news, but do you realize that if you're a Christian, Part of the good news for you was that you came to hear this warning of judgment. If you're not a Christian, it's good news to you that you've come to hear today that God is the one who is rightly in authority in your life. And you should submit to that. It's the only way you'll be rescued from the penalty of sin. None of us are going to welcome this part of the good news until we welcome the fact that we are sick. That every one of us has a disease of sin. Every one of us is dying. So we're like the woman we see in the Gospels who had been suffering her whole life. She tried everything to be healed and to be rid of an ailment that just stayed with her. And her last chance was to crawl on her hands and knees through a crowd of people to desperately reach out just to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. It was her last hope. We are like the man who sat paralyzed by the pool of Bethesda for 38 years, wishing and wanting that someone would come and give us help to access the living water, the pool, but on our own, unable to move. Our sin leaves us so paralyzed, so enslaved, so hopeless to save ourselves. I said that, that God's authority over us is where the good news begins. 
But there's more to the good news than that. As we see in this passage, Jesus came with a purpose for his authority. He came to use his authority to accomplish salvation and forgiveness of sins in his name through his dying for us and through his resurrection. And now he and the good news that he came to proclaim welcomes you and me out from under the curse of sin that we live in, all of us are born into, and he welcomes us into a new life in his kingdom under his authority. And it's a kingdom in which we can live in with joy and with peace. And we can live in it forever. One day in his kingdom even, we're not going to need Jesus to heal us. We're not going to need to ask God to help us with our afflictions and our diseases and the things that so easily beset us in this, in this world because he will have rid every part of it, every ounce of it, every measure, every last remain of sin and what the curse brought into this world. He will have erased it all in his new kingdom. There will be no more crying, no more tears, no more disease, no more affliction because Christ the King will end it all and Christ the Creator will make all things new. Praise the Lord this morning if you have experienced this forgiveness through the good news of Jesus Christ. And as the psalmist says, do not forget all his benefits. Who forgives all your sins and heals all your diseases, who redeems you from life, from the pit, and crowns you with love and compassion. That's the first part of Christ's mission. He has authority over the world. The second observation about Jesus' mission is in verse 36, where we see that Christ shows compassion for the world. There was a time in my life about 10 years ago when I was given the opportunity to work on a book tour. There was a, a well-known, uh, two well-known authors who had just come out with their books, and I was hired to travel the country in a bus going from site to site doing book signings. So there's very few Walmarts in this country that I have not been to because of this job. And, and what do, we would do, we would try to visit up to five different sites a day. So it was a whirlwind tour. Different cities every day. We, we went to like 52 cities in 27 days or something crazy. But what we did, we would show up early in the morning. We'd set up shop at, at like a Walmart or a bookstore. And then there would be a line of people who had come to get their book signed by the author. And of course, we needed to be efficient. We got there, we got people through, the shaking of the hands, the hellos, goodbyes, signings. Then we were back on the bus to make the next stop. It was not a time where we were able to kind of establish a presence or meet people or relate to people or get to know people better. Jesus' ministry wasn't like that. We see that here. His ministry to the sick and the helpless was not some rote exercise. Not some exercise of efficiency where he just tried to get it all done as fast as he could. It wasn't an assembly line of people who would come, who would shake his hand, who would touch his clothes, and leave with a clean bill of health. And then Jesus would hop on the, 
the bus or whatever the equivalent was, the boat, and move to the next city. It wasn't like that. No, Jesus was an involved mind, body, soul in his mission. Jesus looked at this throng of sick and dying people and he, as we're told, was deeply moved by what he saw. He had compassion on them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. We hear the sounds of the passage read earlier from Ezekiel 34. The brokenness of God to see his sheep scattered all over and no one going to save them. The fact that Jesus was so moved with compassion tells us what he desires for us, doesn't it? Jesus wants us to know joy and peace and grace and love that we experience when he is our good shepherd, when we look to him to guide our lives. He looks around and sees the suffering, not just from sickness, but from abuse. And they were completely unable to know where they should turn for help. Here was the Savior, the Messiah, right in front of them, yet they couldn't see him because they didn't know what to look for. It should have been the leaders who would be the first to rush to the Messiah and say, He has come. The one prophesied in the Old Testament is finally here. It should have been the leaders. But earlier in chapter 9, we see them trying to use their authority to turn the people against Jesus. Sadly, each of you could probably tell of a person in your family or in the news or in a church you once were a part of where they misrepresented God and Jesus by the way they abused their authority. It's the sad reality of this world that if we've grown up only seeing, only knowing fakes and counterfeits, we won't recognize the genuine article even when it's right in front of us. If that's your experience this morning, if that's your history, this passage gives us the real thing, the genuine article, Jesus and what he, with all his authority, is really like. He doesn't prey upon the weak. He doesn't crush the downcast. He doesn't break the bruised. He doesn't run from the unrighteous. He sees the helpless and he longs to heal them. He looks on those shackled in despair and he feels the weight and the crushing guilt of sin with us. He identifies with us in that. He sees sin in our life and he despises it. He doesn't despise us, but what sin has done to us and to this world. If you've never seen this Jesus, and you've only grown up knowing terrible misrepresentations and counterfeits, I invite you to look at him this morning as he truly is. God will not abuse you with his authority. 
Yes, He will be lovingly honest with you about what His good and right authority means if you continue to reject Him and live in rebellion against Him. And that is an action of His love. And if you submit to Him and trust in Him, He will use His authority to love you, to guide you, to protect you. And I assure you, you will never know better love and gentler and kinder authority than you will know with Jesus. Those of you who have authority, either in your home or in your job or in some other sphere of your life, when you use your authority, does it look like Christ's compassion to seek to lead people with love and understanding? Would those under your authority, if asked, would they say that you are patient and kind and gentle, quick to listen, slow to show anger? If not, make it a point, even this week, even today, to reflect on how we see God in Jesus using His authority and how He instructs you through Christ and His example to use the authority, not that is your own, but that He has given to you. Pastors, deacons, other leaders of this church, Christ's compassion should be the key to your leadership. You are under shepherds, leading the sheep to see and follow Christ, the good shepherd. Help them to know what they're looking for. Preach Christ clearly. Model Christ lovingly. Follow Christ faithfully. That kind of leadership will help the church flock to experience and understand Christ's love and His care. We shouldn't confuse Christ's compassion with pity. Pity is feeling for someone, but from a distance. It's sympathy without interaction. Compassion is empathy expressed through love and affection. And there's no better picture, no clearer display of what we mean by compassion than the cross of Jesus Christ. To what degree would Christ enter into our world in order to save us? To what extent would He experience our sin-sick reality in order to deliver us? Well, the answer comes back from Isaiah, which says this, He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised, and we esteemed him not. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrow, yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him, and afflicted. 
but he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Our good shepherd became the sacrifice necessary to pay the penalty for our sin. He became like us in order to save us. He saw that we were harassed and we were helpless and he provided relief and rescue by giving his life. And his compassion never stopped. It never waned. He never thought twice about pouring out this kind of grace on us. And even in his dying breath, for the very people who had executed him, and for all the people who would reject him, he prayed this, Father, forgive them, because I do not know what they do. If you're among those who have rejected Christ even up to this very hour, Christ died to forgive you. Your hatred for him did not stop him. Your rejection of him did not give him second thoughts about whether it was worth it to him. Trust him. Repent and turn from your sins. Believe in him and come alive today in the warmth and the joy of God's love for you. Christ's compassion for us was unlimited. Are there any limits to your compassion for others? If Christ's compassion moved him to give his life for us, what might his compassion move us to do this week in compassion for others? Ask the Lord to give you a compassionate heart be able to walk through the world and see others as Christ sees them. Identify one person, just one person in your life that you can move toward in this kind of Christ-like compassion. Christ's mission to the world was to show his authority over the world, and it was to show compassion for the world. What then should our mission be? Well, the first part of our mission that we see in this text is that we ought to pray for the world with Christ's compassion, trusting in God's authority. Let's read verse 37 and 38 again. Then Jesus said to his disciples, The harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Ask the Lord of the harvest, therefore, to send out workers into his harvest field. In these verses and in the beginning of chapter 10, which we'll look at in a second, we see Christ's mission for the church. This is what Christ wants us to be doing. So we should listen and pay attention because this is how we can be active in carrying his gospel-proclaiming, sinner-saving mission, taking it into the world. What Christ sees in the crowds in verse 36 moves him 
and he turns to his disciples and makes an observation. And this observation gives us another look, another angle at the deep, deep compassion of Christ. He says the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. It shows a longing on the part of the Savior to have those outside the kingdom brought in to his kingdom. A metaphor of the harvest, it stands for the crowds that Jesus looked around and saw. It stands for the spiritually sick in need of healing, the blind who need to see Jesus, the dead who need to be raised to life. And the metaphor is just as applicable today. 2,000 years later, it stands for those who wander in darkness in Austin, Texas, in the U.S., in India, in China, in Russia, in Dubai, and throughout the world. And we also learn from Jesus' words that this harvest is plentiful. This is the great potential of gospel missions. Plentiful is a positively open-ended amount. Just when we think we've seen the very end of God's harvest field and we witness countries closing their borders to seek to blockade Christian mission inside their countries, places like Iran, for example, we start to hear the testimonies trickle in of how the gospel has subverted every effort of man to blockade God's advance for his glory throughout this world, and we hear testimony of people coming to Christ by the hundreds in a country that man tried to close off from God. When governments seek to cut down the harvest and persecute missionaries and persecute those who go with the gospel abroad, the church doesn't die. It grows. And Christians are multiplied. And it is as if oppression encourages the advance of the gospel. Such is God's great design and power. If we're to believe God's promise to Abraham very long ago, then the harvest must be at least as plentiful as what? The stars in the heaven and the sands on the seashore. Do you know what this means? It means God is determined to save a lot of people. Heaven will be full of a multi-ethnic, multilingual, multi-racial harvest. But there's a need. There's a pressing need. A harvest season does not last forever. And currently there are not enough workers, Jesus says. There are plenty of souls, Christ seems to say, that I will save. But I need people, I need my messengers, my ambassadors to go to them with my life-giving gospel. And again, I know Jesus said this a long time ago. But the workers are still few. 
Yes, we have missions boards and we have agencies and we have mapped all the unreached people groups across the globe and that is valuable work. And we've given resources out of obedience and generosity to see this work advance and we've given and we've given to see the gospel spread throughout the farthest reaches of the world and still the harvest is plentiful but the laborers are few. We must pray. This is Christ's first instruction to us. Notice, it is not, you must go do something big for God. It is depend on God. Why? Why is it that we're called to pray first? Because we're talking about God's harvest. As the text clearly says, it's His harvest field. When we pray with compassion, we are actively trusting in a compassionate God who will use His power and His authority to show His saving compassion to the very people we pray for. The best mission strategy focuses not on what we can do for God's glory, but what God is and is going to do for his own glory. The Lord is committed to bringing his harvest in, and he will send people to do the work. When we pray, God unleashes his laborers. He sends his heralds running throughout the, throughout the earth proclaiming his life-giving gospel. Park Hills Baptist Church pray. God is eager to answer this prayer. If you have ever just once prayed in obedience and following the instruction you find here and prayed that God would send workers out into his harvest field, well, I stand in front of you today as a living testimony that God has answered your prayer. God is sending us to the immense harvest in the Arabian Peninsula. Pray for us and pray for more workers there. Adopt a country or a people that you and your family will regularly pray for. Pray for more laborers to join the missionaries that you already support. Pray for laborers to be sent to places that do not, as of right now, have access to the gospel. And pray for laborers here in Austin. And pray with the same compassion that Christ showed for the lost crowd. Pray that a people walking in darkness throughout the world would see and come to see the light of Jesus Christ. Praying with the compassion of Christ for the world. That's step one of our mission to the world. And last, in step two, Go with Christ's authority into the world, showing Christ's compassion. The verse division between the end of chapter 9 and the beginning of chapter 10 is, I think, unfortunate. Because you see, you notice in, in verse 1, and then if you move down to verse 7 and beyond, the same people Christ told to pray are the very ones 
he sends out to do exactly what Jesus had just been doing in chapter 9. Sometimes when we pray that the Lord would send out laborers, we become the answer that God uses to his own prayer. This verse is how the history of the church began. This is how you and I are here today. Jesus showed his authority and his compassions to his disciples, to the apostles, and then he gave his authority to them to go and, and show the same compassion to others, instructing them to go out teaching whatever he had commanded them and proclaiming the gospel and, as he says, making disciples of every na nation, baptizing them in, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the cycle begins and it continues and runs throughout the record of the history of this world since Jesus until it lands us here. This is how God's kingdom advances. This is how the gospel conquers death and brings life to us. Perhaps you're here and you agonize about the diminishing relevance of the church in our society. Could it be that we have forgotten that gospel proclamation coupled with compassion is vital to Christ's mission in this world? The sin-sick and dying souls we live and work with will not know we are Christians by our standoff pity and our polemics. They will not truly know our Christ by our politics and our social media posts. They will know we are Christians and they will know the compassion of Jesus by our up-close intimate, intentional, and personal love. My wife and I are reading through a book called The Secret Thoughts of an Unlikely Convert. You may have heard of it. I would highly recommend it to you. It's a story, without going into detail and spoiling for you, it's a story about a woman who taught in the university for some years who taught things that were directly opposed to God's word and lived a lifestyle like all of us did before he saved us in rebellion against him. She talks about how it was that she became a Christian. She talks in great detail, helpful detail, I think, about the mindset of the unbeliever and what certain things communicate from Christians to her and communicate when she didn't know Christ. And she gives helpful instruction to us that we would stand to benefit from as a church that seeks to show compassion and take the gospel. But the story goes is that while she was very much in her sin, there was a couple in her town took notice and by time and detailed effort and intention and love and affection befriended her not with standoff pity, but up-close love. And over time, she came to see, lived out in front of her, what Christ's love is like. And she came to trust in Christ and to become a follower of Jesus. 
She was the kind of person that you and I might have the temptation to look on as an outcast and hopeless. I'd like to use her example just for a second as we close as a test case for us as we examine our lives and how we may be or may not be showing compassion to those around us. What would you have done or what do you do with the people you identify around you as very lost and very distant from Christ? How do you treat them are they welcome at your dinner table? Are they welcome in your home? Would you have built a relationship with this woman? Do you? Would, you, would she have felt wanted in your house and welcomed, even to bring her unbelievers with her? We are not following Christ if we are not orienting our lives around going to the lost. We are not following Christ if we are not orienting our lives around going to the lost. Jesus came. Jesus went to us. So we must guard against the hellish idea that maintaining a distance from people like the woman I just described will help them to see that she is different, and then, miraculously, she'll be compelled to become a Christian. For our own good, I want to rip that lie apart. I want you to do it with me as we investigate our relationships. Who made the unbeliever you work with? Who made you? There's no difference, is there? What is their greatest problem? What is my greatest problem? Enslaved to sin, there's no difference. What is their greatest need? What is my greatest need? What is your greatest need? To come to see Christ and experience his salvation and forgiveness. There's no difference. Why did Christ save you? Why would Christ save them? There's no difference. There is only one thing that separates us as Christians from the lost around us in the world. It is the grace and it is the love of Christ. And we are given this instruction. Go to them. And show them Christ's love and tell them of Christ's compassion for them. We have the power and the authority of the gospel. We have the compassion of Jesus Christ within us. Are you open to hear God, answer your prayers for the nations by Him telling you that you are the laborer that He will send. If that scares you, 
that God might have that intention and purpose and mission for you, there's nothing to fear. The harvest is the Lord's. And as we saw, he's going to bring it in. The authority over all things is God's. And he told you, he has promised us that he will apply that authority to you when you go. Go. God may be urging you. And start treating your neighbor like Christ treated you. Go and back by my authority, start building a relationship of love and compassion with the person you work with, with the child in your home. Go and take the message of Christ crucified, buried, and risen again to a rejected people in Austin, Texas, or a remote people across the world. Hear that call this morning and become a part of the gracious missionary work of God who compassionately committed to save sinners around us just like he saved us by sending out his labors into the harvest. This was Jesus' mission. This is the mission he has given us. May the Lord find us faithful. Let's pray. We've never seen authority exercised like you have done for us, O God. We have never known the depth of love and compassion that you have shown to us in coming to die for us and welcoming us into your kingdom. We stand amazed again. How high, how wide. How immeasurably far and how immeasurably deep is the ocean of God's love that has poured over us, those who know you this morning. How sweet it is to live in your kingdom and to know your joy and your peace. Lord, seek the lost sheep that are here this morning and bring them into your fold. Help them to see how desperately they need you. And Lord, impress on us your labors that we should go wherever you have called us and be your ambassadors with your compassion, given your authority to proclaim your gospel to your harvest. And we pray that you would bring both the laborers and the fruit of the harvest home. And we look forward to the day when we all together will rejoice around your throne, praising the God who was committed to saving those who were rebels against him. And we will stand together as sons and daughters, praising the name of our God, our Father, our Lord and Savior. And in that great hope we go out today, and pray you give faith and strength and endurance to labor until you would have us come home to you. We ask these things in Jesus' name.